3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the lands from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and it is just gone 7 in the morning. Good morning, Malika. Good morning, Carly. Good morning. Uh, Sorry, Rosie. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so far away. It could be Carly. (laughs) I know I was like, uh, you know, in my in my uh, regular mode where Carly is just Carly lives rent free in my head. <laughs> yeah, Carly does. Yeah, listeners, I'm I'm across the studio way in a different studio because of COVID restrictions, so it's very hard to remember who you're talking to and um, if you're really on air or not. But I think we are. I believe we're on air. I can see the little line moving, um, but you know. Feel free to leave us feedback if uh, all you heard was dead air for an hour and a half. (laughs) I really hope not because it's a really huge show this morning. It is a massive show. Um, Maybe we should just jump into the rundown. Excellent segue, Rosie. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So... Starting, um, w- oh, sorry, first up, we are hearing from J.N. Janide, who's a Rohingya journalist and journalism editor at the Archipelago magazine, and he is a student of political science and a human rights activist, and he was formerly an engineering and physics student in Myanmar before being forced to flee to Indonesia. Janide contributes to film and publishing accounts of refugees searching for a safe and durable solution. So what we're going to play is the first of a two-part interview that I did with Janaid earlier this week, where he speaks about his own experiences of seeking asylum and becoming stranded in Indonesia and the Australian government's complicity and, indeed, orchestration of this process. Um, so a content warning, uh, this segment does include some discussion of traumatic experiences endured while seeking asylum, and we'll repeat this before we play the segment as well. Um, and the Freedom Street documentary as well, which is mentioned um or uh, it'll be mentioned in the second part of the interview, but it is really important. It covers the story of Janaid and other refugees trapped in Indonesia due to Australia's border regime. And you can donate to their fundraiser at freedomstreetfilm.com. We will then be speaking to Mariam, who is a clinical scientist and Afghan clothing and jewellery boutique owner. She moved to Australia in 2001 on a humanitarian visa from Pakistan with her mother. And she's joining us to talk about her fundraising campaign to raise emergency funds for displaced families in Kabul during the ongoing humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. Um, after that, we'll be speaking with Senator Lydia Thorpe, a Jabwarang Gunai and Gunditjmara woman and the Green Senator for Victoria. In 2017, she became the first Aboriginal woman in Victorian Parliament. And then in 2020, she became the first Indigenous person to represent Victoria in Federal Parliament. This morning, she's joining us on 3CR to talk about treaty in light of incarceration rates and climate change and to discuss the truth-telling and treaty circle, which is happening this evening at 7pm. 
Yeah, and you can find information about that on all of uh, Senator Lydia Thorpe's social media. So um, head to that, um, you know, sign yourself up before you hear the interview. Um, and after that, we're going to hear from Irene, who's the secretary of the Renters and Housing Union, or RAHU, who joins us to discuss a recent VCAT decision that ruled it lawful for renters to be evicted from their homes from, uh, for unpaid rental debt accrued during the Victorian eviction moratorium that ended in March this year. So we'll also discuss the ongoing rental stress and housing precarity of casualized workers and those on low incomes amid current lockdowns, noting that the job seeker rate still hasn't been raised back to the COVID-19 supplement. So people are really languishing on just a absolutely inadequate amount of money a day. Pay people to stay home. Mm. And lastly, we'll be speaking to Sarah Elsaid, who's going to join us to speak about her first book, Muddy People. She has a Master of Fine Arts and works at the Queensland University of Technology. Her work features in anthologies Growing Up African in Australia and Arab, Australian, Other, among other places. She's a recipient of a Queensland Writers Fellowship and was a finalist for the 2020 Queensland Premier's Young Writers and Publishers Award. Yeah, and I think we had um, Sarah on the show um, just after the publication. I think it was of Arab Australian Other, and um, she spoke with Carly about her uh, work in that anthology. So it'll be really cool to speak to her today and hear about this new book. Yeah, yeah awesome. And um, just one more thing. Um, all three of us now have our first shot, so oh, encouraging yes. everyone to get vaccinated. Woohoo, Thursday breakfast. And <laughs> if you can get vaccinated, please do. And I reckon we might jump into a community service announcement about that before we come back to headlines. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. And you're on Thursday Breakfast, 3CR, 855 AM. And now we're going to jump into some headlines. So, Rosie, did you want to take us through those? Yeah, I will. Uh, just just quickly on that, that um, community service announcement. It's a bit of a tearjerker, isn't it? It makes me think, like, let's get back to being in the same studio. Um, yes, yeah, so for headlines today, uh, the 19th of August. Demonstrations taking place across West Papua on Monday were forcibly halted by Indonesian police. Marches and vigils were organised in opposition to Jakarta's planned renewal of special autonomy in Papua, which they argue, uh, the protesters, is a form of colonial rule and prevents West Papuan self-determination. Demonstrators were also calling for the release of pro-independence activist and anti-racism protester Victor Yaemu. Listeners can support the calls for his release by signing an Amnesty International petition um, at tinyurl.com forward slash 3nryh8zn or you can search Amnesty International Victor Yaimo, V-I-C-T-O-R-Y-E-I-M-O in your search engine and we can link to that on our um, page as well. 
As the New South Wales COVID-19 outbreak continues, Aboriginal communities in Western New South Wales say they have been left in the dark, NITV News reports. A lack of government support and health infrastructure in the area, as well as a slow vaccine rollout, are worrying the local community. Despite being identified as a priority group, community members report it has been difficult to access vaccines, especially Pfizer vaccines for those under 60. Calls are continuing to be made for more accessible and rapid, and rapid testing. As of Wednesday, 66% of the 139 active cases in the area are Aboriginal people and 40% are kids aged up to 19 years. Listeners can support these communities as well um, by donating to the Darawa Elders Group and they have a give now so you can search Darawa D-H-A-R-R-I-W-A Elders Group on Give Now. Again, we will link to that um, in our show notes and social media. The federal government has faced local and international criticism over its purchase of 500,000 doses of the Pfizer vaccine from COVAX. The UN-run COVAX scheme is intended to supply poorer nations with access to COVID-19 vaccines free of charge. But nations like Australia, Canada and the UK can and have purchased doses. The Sydney Morning Herald reports that Australia received 500,000 doses, quote, double what the entire continent of Africa received under COVAX in the same month. While nations in our own region, including Indonesia, Malaysia and Thailand, struggle to vaccinate their populations in order to fight the Delta strain of the virus. Calls have been made for Australia to return the doses received through COVAX. And finally, an article published on Indigenous X by CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, Jill Gallagher, outlines the disastrous effect proposed changes to the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profits Commission, ACNC, regulations would have on the work of Aboriginal community controlled organisations. The proposed changes would limit or prevent registered charities from participating in protest and advocacy work an integral role for, organisa- for organisations such as Vacho Gallagher argues. The article outlines how this work is intimately linked to both self-determination and health outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and listeners can find that full article at indigenousx.com.au forward slash we-will-not-be-silenced. And that's all for Thursday Morning Headlines. Yeah, um, there's just so much going on, and I think especially um, thinking about the the vaccination thing and, and Australia poaching vaccines from from other countries through that scheme is just you know it, it's just unacceptable. I think you know people who are reluctant to um, get particular types of vaccines. Um, I think the information is out there. We really encourage people to go um, have a you know, have a read, read the public health information, um, have a consult with your GP, um, but please do get vaccinated if you can. Um, that's the only way we're going to stop the spread. And one final thing before we wrap up headlines is, I don't know, I don't know if it's appropriate to do this here. Just want to shout out to Eddie Betts, absolute legend, yes. who is retiring after 350 games. Um, 
Eddie Betts has been a staunch um, advocate for anti-racism in the AFL. And I don't know, um, many of you might have seen uh, the really heartbreaking video um, of him talking about how it's just so exhausting and tiring to keep coming up against racism again and again, um, as we saw uh, with Taylor Walker um, recently. And yeah, we just want to say, Eddie Betts, you're, you're a legend. Thanks so much for all you do. And um, yeah, we're looking forward to what comes next. Absolutely, yeah. What a legend. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And now we're going to go into an interview or part one of an interview with Jayan Janide, who's a Rohingya journalist and journalism editor at the Archipelago magazine. And he's a student of political science and human rights activist, as well as formerly an engineering and physics student in Myanmar before being forced to flee to Indonesia. So, as mentioned, this is the first of a two-part interview with Janide, and the second part is going to be played next Thursday, but then hopefully we're going to be able to play the whole interview after that. So tune in next Thursday for the second part, but also a heads up about where to listen to the interview in full. And in this part, he speaks about his own experiences of seeking asylum and becoming stranded in Indonesia and the Australian government's complicity in this process. So... A content warning, this segment includes some discussion of traumatic experiences endured while seeking asylum, which may be distressing to listeners who are refugees or from refugee backgrounds. And if you need to speak to someone about this, you can call Lifeline 24-7 Australia-wide on 131114. In 2012, I was studying at the uh, university in Rakhine State when the military conducted a genocidal attack on the Rohingya. They were starting like uh, burning all the Rohingya houses and shooting at Rohingya people and slaughtering them. So it was like a massacre of Rohingya in 2012. And I was at my university, which is like five hours far from my home city. And I couldn't go back to my home city then from there, I fled to Bangladesh to save my life. And from Bangladesh, I took a long journey from India to, and then again, Myanmar. And the reason why I went back to Myanmar again, to the capital of Yangon, is that I didn't complete my study. It was like in the third year. So in my final year, that I had to leave the country. And I thought the Yangon was a capital city, the former capital city, sorry. And it's a cosmopolitan city where all the NGOs and every department and the international community are there and all the offices. So I thought that, you know, being in capital, I would not face discrimination and that it would be normal for me to continue my study there. Then I came to Yangon. And I saw that the hate speech and the violence conflict were actually spreading all over member. Before 
2013, it was an attack on only Rohingya, but by 2013, it was an attack on all the Muslim in Myanmar. And especially if they find someone from Rakhine State, it would be very difficult for him. So, and I did try to stay in Myanmar, and I thought that maybe I should just go somewhere to wait until things get back to normal. Then I had a cousin in China. Then I went to China with my cousin just to wait until things get better. And I waited there for about six months. And then I come back again in first month of 2013, January. Then I saw that the conflict was escalating all over Myanmar and nothing was changing at all. Everything was the same, but it's getting worse. As you can see until now, it has gotten worse since then. And then I decided, uh, you know, to seek asylum in a signatory country. And I learned that Australia was a signatory country to the UN refugee conventions. I did not wish to cross the border illegally, but I had no other option. Because if I were to appear in at any government offices in Myanmar, it would be like buying a ticket for myself to go to jail forever. So being in Rohingya, and then appear to the government that I come from <laughs> Rakhine State and I'm going to Australia. I want to make a passport. What do you think they would do to me? <laughs> so I, and on the other hand, even if I want to, even if the government is okay, I can't still make any passport because I don't have citizenship in my country. I was living like an illegal immigrant in my own country. In 1982, the government canceled the Rohingya citizenship and then rendered us as stateless. So since then, we have been living like stateless in our own country. And most of our human rights were deprived. Like we can't really travel within, even within the country. Like I said, just to come to Yangon, I had to travel like two different countries. So Again, I had to cross the border illegally. Then I crossed the border from Myanmar to Thailand and then from Thailand to Malaysia. But as it is not as easy as, as I'm saying here, crossing border illegally is not easy. And especially a smuggling were yourself within a smuggler who are known to be the world most dangerous person in the world, you know. But I was lucky, God saved me, and I safely make it to Malaysia. And then from Malaysia, I took a boat to Indonesia. Uh, it was like one night, but it was not easy journey as well. I almost died because it was my first time taking a long journey, a long boat journey with a small boat. And finally, I make it to Indonesia. And from there, yeah, so... I tried to take a boat to Australia and, and in the middle of international water, our boat engine was broken. And again, I was almost died, you know. So the boat was sinking and the people were like trying to throw the water from the boat. And I did thought that we, we could not survive. But I just pray to the goodness of the world 
and for the life that the war has given me. Um, and I quickly type a message to my mom, and there was no signal. I just thought that if somewhere it gets signal, maybe my mom would have at least hear what I what happened to me. So I quickly type a message. Then, you know, at the back of the boat, and there is a nice space to lay down. So I was laying down, and people were like fighting for the life jacket. It was too noisy to relax. I mean, before you die, you need to have like a moment of your life to relax. So that was my moment. Then I fall asleep, and suddenly in the morning, uh, I saw that we are close to Indonesian border, and we saw Indonesian land, and I was surprised. Like, how did we make it here? Uh, a few moments later, Indonesians uh, police came. They took us to a hotel where they locked us up for 24 hours in the hotel room. Some people tried to escape from the hotel, and I also tried, but uh, couldn't make it. Then I heard that one of the Islam seekers that escaped from there was beaten to death, and that scared me. From there, they took me to immigration detention in South Sulawesi, Manado, where they detained me like one and a half years. So after one and a half years in the detention, I was registered as a refugee by the UNICEF, and then from there they moved me to uh, Makassar IUM accommodation. When I heard the news that I will be moved to IUM accommodation, I thought that I would be like free, I would be released into the freedom, and that I would have a like normal life and I could like rebuild my life and live happily again and fulfill my dreams and pursue my education and doing everything just like a normal human being. And that was my expectation when, because I really do know that much about the politics that involves around there. And I didn't really have that much understanding about Australian policy and I didn't know anything because I, I was... I never into I was never into politics. I was studying physics, and my uh, dream was to become maybe a physician or a scientist. But when I faced the situation, because I was asking myself like, what have I done wrong to put me in the detention, to put me in the jail? Because in my life, I have never committed any crimes. I have never even been, you know, in a quarrel, in a fight, with, even with my friends. Why they put me in the jail? For what? Did I commit any crimes? My simple intention was to seek safety after fleeing from conflict, after fleeing genocide in Myanmar. So I was asking myself, like, seeking safety is a crime. Is it a crime? Because I didn't know the politics. I didn't know the law. I had this in my mind that I want to find out why I was detained, for what reason. And I did a study, but I couldn't find any reliable source where I could get all this information. So my plan was to get out of the detention. And then I studied properly about this. Why I was detained, why these people are detained, for a long time, I was lucky, to be honest, I was lucky to be released like in one and a half years, but there were refugees 
who has been detained like five years, six years. And you know what got most of my attention on studying about all this? It's not just my life. I saw there were some families in the detention who has been detained like more than 10 years, 17 years in the detention, 17 years. That detention becomes like their home. The children are detained. The children grow up in detention. They give birth to new children in detention and they are growing up in detention. Who doesn't know anything about outside world? They only know about immigration and detention. Nothing else. So they have been imprisoned ever since they were born. So this got me like really think about why the world system is really treating differently to these innocent people who are just seeking safety. So I have got the best opportunity when I was released from the competition. And then I had the internet. <laughs> And I have the mobile and I start browsing about this thing. And then later, I wanted to know more about politics. Then I joined uh, an online university uh, based in Germany. And I did uh, courses in political science and later in international politics and then in journalism. After studying like about three or five years, I gain all the knowledge and understand the whole complexity of what is happening to the refugee in the world and what Australia has to do with our lives. And specifically, that was something that I focused more. And I learned that everything that is happening in Indonesia, all because of Australia. Just because Australia wants to protect its border and it is doing everything in their power regardless of whether it is hurting to the innocent people or not. What they all care is to protect their border. And it's not just to protect their border, it has also involved seeking self-interest politics, position, power. And protecting the border is a symbol that I learned that they use to persuade the citizen that it is important to save our border. This Immigrants are linked somehow with the terrorism, with Taliban's, and they are coming from this country, and they might be a problem. They, they, they are a threat to our national security. In 2010, Australian Parliament somehow proposed a decree as a form of controlling the border, as they said many people are coming, but this proposal was based on racism, as I said, but Muslim stereotypes kind of racism. Since then, they established a triangle cooperation between IUM, IUM, the International Organization for Migrants, and then the Indonesian government and Australia. So in the agreements, Australia agreed to pay all the facilities and support the detentions and police and immigrations in Indonesia to maintain the detention, to detain refugees. And Indonesia also agreed to intercept refugees who are thought to be going to Australia. And everything would be cooperated through IUM. IUM Australia would channel funds and everything, policy, strategy, all the things through IUM. And then IUM 
was to cooperate with the immigration police and Indonesian government, and that's what exactly what they are doing with the refugees against what they are known to be, you know, like humanitarian organization. So that's because IUM is an independent organization. Uh, it does need third-party helps to extend itself because it doesn't have cure funding like UNHCR. It was created as a migrant control management earlier by the Western countries. And later in 2016, it was rebranded as an IUM under the umbrella of United Nations. And on the other hand, Australia will also want to avoid being responsible for refugees. So that's why they are doing this thing through with a third party, as if Australia has nothing to do anything with the Indonesian refugees. And so that way, IUM and Indonesia is cooperating. They also like uh, straighten this regional cooperation in Bali process as well as a name of Kanta attacking the smugglers, but it was not actually counter-attacking the smugglers. It was counter-attacking refugees, you know, to increase border operations uh, process, uh, like military, police, to train more intelligence services. That was uh, all about this discussion. That was not about counter-attacking as smugglers. From there, the Tony Abbott uh, implemented another policy in 2013, uh, which was actually redesigning the already existing policy and sending a message to the people that if you come by boat, you will not be resettled in Australia, you will be detained in Manus and Nauru. So every time a minister, a prime minister is in Australia, they need to come up with new ideas to kind of like persuade the people to give them the boat. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yema Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. So you just heard uh, the first part of an interview with Jay Anjanide, who's a Rohingya journalist and journalism editor at the Archipelago magazine, a student of political science and a human rights activist who's currently detained in Indonesia as a result of Australian government's uh, policy, you know, complicity uh, in keeping people detained offshore and um you know, housing them out of sight, out of mind when they just try to seek asylum. So um, if you need to speak to somebody about um, that segment, you can always call Lifeline uh, 24-7 Australia-wide on 131114. And, um, yeah, 
really encourage listeners to tune in next week to get the second part of that interview. And as you'll hear in that second part, this also relates to the Freedom Street documentary, which covers the story of Janaid and other refugees trapped in Indonesia due to Australia's border regime. And you can donate to their fundraiser and find out more at freedomstreetfilm.com. Um, we'll now be speaking with Mariam, who is a clinical scientist and Afghan clothing and jewellery boutique owner. She moved to Australia in 2001 on a humanitarian visa from Pakistan with her mother, and she'll be joining us to talk about her f- current fundraising campaign to raise emergency funds for displaced families in Kabul during the ongoing humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. Good morning, Mariam. Good morning, guys. How are you? Very, very good. Thanks for joining us um, this morning. Um, I guess we'll just jump right into it. Um, could you tell listeners a bit about yourself and what led you to starting this GoFundMe page and fundraising opportunity? Yeah, sure. So first of all, thank you guys for having me. Um, I was actually born in Afghanistan during the first Taliban era in the 90s. So mm-hmm. um, we then got to moving to Pakistan with my family as refugees and we were displaced just like the families that um, have been at the moment in Afghanistan. Um, so even though I was quite young, I do still remember every little bit of fear that I was going through and mm. the feeling of hopelessness and not having a home to go to. Mm. Um, so at first I started my boutique and that was a way to help struggling families and um, especially women as they do all of the hand stitching and then a percentage also goes to them. Um, so experiencing firsthand what it feels like, um, I think is what started the fundraiser for me in the beginning and then People's generosity was absolutely amazing. So I had to start a GoFundMe as everyone around the world wanted to help. And that was the easiest way to go about it. Mm. Um, So, yeah, knowing exactly what these people feel like um, and just having that little bit of um, sense of knowing that people care for you gives you a lot of hope during tough times like that. Of course, of course. And I guess I've been following you on Instagram and I remember you mentioning that initially you were wanting to make care packages for people, but after speaking to people on the ground, um, you were noticing or, or that people had different needs. And I guess like what have been some of the common requests from people um, when you have been trying to help out? Um, yeah, so initially we did want to make care packages um, and then having the people people on ground who went and actually saw um, and talked with people that were displaced. Um, local families had been quite generous with giving them food and water mm. um, on the daily. So that's what we initially wanted to make. Um, and, yeah, so when we spoke to them, there was a lot of requests for utensils to be able to do their own cooking um, as well as baby products. Um, but majority of them wanted money so they could provide health care as well for their families, yeah. you know, being... In a situation like that, they were literally living in parks with absolutely nothing. Um, So some of them were unwell. So that's why we thought um, giving them um, money would be the best. And um, now that the situation has um, gone ahead and the Taliban have taken over, we're also going to try and help members of the army who have suddenly lost their jobs since there's no government now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and these are the people that served the country and they were guards to political figures mm. and they haven't had their salary for months. So, wow. um, yeah, we're also going to try and help them out as well. That's awesome. And I guess for far too long the situation in Afghanistan has not really received the attention it requires. What would you recommend for people that might be interested in maybe learning more or doing more to support the community at the moment? Um, yeah, yeah. So this is the first time I've seen Afghanistan actually get the attention it deserves and it's definitely 
power of people uniting. So it's amazing to see. Um, yeah, for anyone interested um, in supporting the community, please, please just share news about the situation. That's a hand. Self-educate and know what's going on and mm-hmm. why this is happening. Um, take action and take part in petitions, protests, write letters to your MPs to be able to help Afghan refugees that are currently in Australia or in Indonesia, any detention centres, and to be able to get anyone especially at risk at the moment, minority groups out of Afghanistan. Um, and it literally just takes a couple of minutes. So um, letters to your MPs have already been written on how they can help. You just need to put your name on it. Um, there is links on um, my um, on the Maz Boutique Instagram as well, and I'm sure a lot of any Afghan friends that you have will be able to tell you about it also. Yeah, and how do you spell Maz Boutique for anyone that might want to follow follow you on Instagram? Um, yep, so it's M A Z B O U T I Q U E dot A U. Awesome, um, and also for anyone who is wanting to support um, Mariam's ongoing GoFundMe campaign. I think if you just search Kabul funds on GoFundMe, they can be redirected to your page. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah. So there's the GoFundMe page, um, which GoFundMe are currently reviewing. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's also can funds can directly be sent to myself again, which is in the charity highlights of my Instagram. Awesome. So yeah, for anyone interested, that probably the best first stop would be checking out um, Maz Boutique and then going from there. And and any final kind of messages that you want to amplify for listeners joining in today, Mariam? Um, yeah, definitely. So, um, like I said, the um, outreach and everything has been absolutely amazing. And I feel like this is a generation that really, really does matter. Mm-hmm. And what we do can help every single matter around the world. And the power of social media is unmatched. Um, so, like I said, I started this on my personal Instagram. I didn't have a huge amount of following, but every little bit has helped and that's got other people to spread awareness. Um, so please just don't stop talking about the matters, the people of Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And no matter how small your platform, don't stop posting about it just after this phase is over because um, like so many other issues, um, it's gained widespread attention and it's been amazing. Um, so when we start to let go of this message, we're letting go of hope and for mm-hmm. freedom of people. So speak up for the people that can't speak up for themselves and um, a couple of seconds can change their lives. For sure. That's some really powerful words, Mariam. Thank you so much for joining in today and sharing your story and sharing this platform that you're creating. And, yeah, for um, listeners that are interested, go follow her on Maz Boutique on Instagram and also check out her GoFundMe page. Um, if you just search Kabul Funds um, or her Instagram account can redirect you there. But, yeah, thanks again for joining in today, Mariam. Thank you guys for having me. No problem. So we would we just spoke with Mariam, um, who is a clinical scientist and Afghan clothing and boutique owner of Maz Boutique, and she just joined us today to talk about um, her current GoFundMe campaign to raise funds for displaced families in Kabul during the ongoing humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. And for people interested in donating or hearing more from Mariam, you can check out our Instagram page, Maz Boutique, that's M-A-Z-B-O-U-T-I-Q-U-E, or check out the GoFundMe page and just search Kabul Funds. Yeah, and um, there's also a bumper link tree um, collation of funds in which Maz Boutique's fundraiser is included, and you can find that at 
linktree slash Afghanistan needs you. So that's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E forward slash Afghanistan needs you. And that includes um, ways you can write letters to your MPs uh, for both aid and calling for solidarity with the Afghan people and increasing refugee quotas. That is such an important part of it, Um, but also funds where you can donate to support um, Afghan people who are really just, you know, struggling to survive and navigate an incredibly difficult situation caused by years and years Mm. of Western intervention and imperialism. Mm. Agreed. Thanks for sharing that, Priya. Yeah, no worries. And um, I think we might go into a track now. So this is a brand new one from King Stingray, and it is called Milkamana.
That was Milkumana, which is a new track by King Stingray. Um, there's a really awesome music video that also just dropped, um, and we recommend having a look at that as well because I think we could all use a bit of a lift right now, and that definitely provides it. And you're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong and how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Yan. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. Story about this story's true. 
breakfast on 3CR 855 AM and we are about to be uh, speaking with Senator Lydia Thorpe who's a Jaburang, Gunai and Gunichamara woman and Green Senator for Victoria and in 2017 Lydia became the first Aboriginal woman in Victoria uh, in Victorian Parliament and in 2020 became the first Indigenous person to represent Victoria in Federal Parliament. So uh, Good morning, Lydia. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on 3CR 855 AM. Good morning. Always a pleasure to uh, support and join 3CR. Yeah, we um, love that you love 3CR and are very appreciative of your work. So um, maybe we can jump straight into it. I think... Uh, there's obviously a lot going on right now, and I think one of the key themes of our conversation today is going to be treaty um, and the need for treaties between the government and First Nations people. Um, so I thought we might start off by talking about the current closing the gap targets and uh, imprisonment rates in Victoria and some of the sort of issues around you know, these skyrocketing prison uh, imprisonment rates and the relationship between a treaty and how, you know, that would be addressed? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, well, we've seen uh, time and time again that no government has been able to close the gap. Uh, and in particular, this government that we're dealing with right now, they've gone backwards. Uh, yes, they can, you know, put some little small ticks uh, on some 
uh, areas of importance, but the ones that are killing us, uh, they're going backwards. And that's the rates of suicide, that's the rates of incarceration, that's the rates of child removal. Uh, they're, they've all increased and they're going backwards. So it basically, um, going by the government timeline on closing the gap targets, they would not be achieved, uh, well, parity would be achieved, particularly in imprisonment rates of Aboriginal people in this country until 2093. I'll be dead. We'll be dead. So, you know, what, what have we got to look forward to if we've got a government that says, oh, we'll, <clears throat> we'll reach parity in 2093? A government uh, who will not implement the full recommendations of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody. Uh, and then, you know, we look at uh, Victorian um, government where imprisonment rate, particularly of our women in Victoria, mm. has gone up 174% in from two, 2010 to 2020. Uh, and then we have more than half of our women in prison uh, who have not even been sentenced for a crime. So that means, you know, a majority of those women, if they've got babies, they've had their babies taken away from them, they've been put in a maximum security prison and they have not even been sentenced. Yeah, it is just it's just appalling. We've had um, conversations before with uh, the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, but also with Human Rights Law Centre about um, the bail laws that are pretty draconian in Victoria and the number of uh, Aboriginal women in particular that are on remand in Victoria. So this is a really serious issue. That's right. And so we can talk about close the gap, we can talk about treaty, but if we've got um, leaders who aren't genuine about that approach and and how to get there quicker, then we'll never get there. Uh, treaty is a way forward for this country to mature as a nation. It's a way that we can address those injustices of in- inequality uh, and we can address the past wrongs that have, um, you know, that the colonisers have committed against us. Those things we need to address because what we are experiencing in this country right now are the symptoms of that invasion, are the symptoms of colonisation, the symptoms of invasion. And so we need to address those symptoms through a truth-telling process and a treaty that that brings peace. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, something that does kind of come up from critiques of uh, a treaty process, whether this is in the right-wing kind of media um, lens or, you know, from people that are not quite aware of what this would entail, can you maybe speak to a bit of what treaty means in terms of recognising political sovereignty of First Nations people? Well, a treaty is a an agreement from between two sovereigns, between two parties. And in this case, it's between two sovereigns, the real sovereigns and the ones who say that uh, they are sovereign and who've, who say that they've acquired 
sovereignty when they put their their flag into our soil. So it's negotiation about, uh, and this is look, this is up to the people. I'm not, I don't have all the answers. Treaty's got to come from the people. It's got to come from the grassroots. It's got to come from clans and nations on country about what is going to work for them. But to me, it's about shared sovereignty and it's about what that looks like. What does shared sovereignty look like? Because if it doesn't include 3% of the GDP in this country, which is trillions of dollars, where we don't have to rely on welfare, where we can self-determine our own destiny and economically empower ourselves through some of this stolen wealth that they've created here in this country, then, you know, it, it, it's not about... Uh, it's got to be that high level. It's got to have land. It's got to have... Uh, negotiations around coal-fired power stations on my country and Gunai country. We don't want it mm. there. Get rid of it. Um, so it's going to depend on different mobs about what they want for their country. But I can guarantee you all right now, a lot of those asks will be about protecting country and protecting our people, which includes our whole community, black and white, and it's really important for white fellows out there to get involved and learn about treaty and how you can become involved in this process because it is about, ultimately, it's about peace and it's about uh, rewriting the racist constitution. It's about having a blank canvas that we can, that we can create together and at the end of it, celebrate together and, and bridge the divide that this country has and mm. get rid of the racism. Yeah, and I think, you know, what you're speaking to, you know, it, it is hard to capture in one single definition because it does really rely on uh, that ground level consultation and communication and listening to Aboriginal nations around the country. Um, so, just um, on one of the points that you made around those coal fire um, stations, I think it's it's important to touch on the fact that the Minister for Energy, Environment and Climate Change, uh, which just is interesting that that's included in the name, Lily D'Ambrosio, has given her consent for fossil fuel expansion near the Twelve Apostles, even though we've seen the recent IPCC report, which is urging policymakers to take you know immediate action on climate change. Um, so I was wondering if you could speak to that. All I can say is Arnie Lilly's going to have the biggest fight she's ever seen on her hands. That is my country. That is Teray Wurrung country, Gunditjmara, and we are preparing for the fight. And if anyone wants to stand with us and help us to protect our land once again from a Labor government, who thinks, who says that they're our friends, who want to sit around a table and Let's discuss the treaty while we absolutely destroy and desecrate your country. We'll log this, we'll log the central highlands and put your totems at risk of extinction. And then we'll go over to, uh, the 12 apostles, which is incredibly spiritually important for Karei Wurrung people. Um, and we'll destroy that some more, not to mention everything else, AGL, gas. Um, Western Port and so on and so on. Uh, the only way we're going to get this 
dodgy Labor government to listen to us is to protest and to uh, write them letters and to hound them like they've never been hounded before because they have no consent to destroy our country. Mm. No consent. Yeah, and I think um, on that, I think it's also really important to to remember back to early in 2020 where there were a lot of platitudes from various governments around the need to, uh, you know, all of a sudden attend to First Nations care for country and knowledge for, you know, caring and uh, caring for the land. Um, but then when it comes back to the extractive industries, that's all forgotten. Um so before we wrap can up, I just, oh, go, sorry, go ahead. can I just add, it's also manufacturing consent through their cultural heritage legislation. Mm. And it's, you know, they, they pick off blackfellas to uh, agree with them and that, and they leave the, the most disgusting mess behind them where a whole community is devastated and fighting one another because of the government intervention from the absolute beginning that picks us off against each other, and uh, that's got to stop also. Mm. Yeah, no, thank you for raising this. And um, before we wrap up, can you just tell listeners a little bit about uh, the Truth-Telling and Treaty Circle, which is on today, 19th of August, on Zoom at 7 p.m., and where people can tune in? Oh, look, it's an incredible uh, opportunity for people to have a listen um, and to finally stop listening to me about treaty and listen to some other people, uh, particularly some experts that have been working in this space all their lives. Uh, so we've got Uncle Michael Mand- uh, Mansell and we've got um, Uncle Michael Anderson, who's um, who have both been on this journey for a long time. Mm. But we also have the amazing Celeste Little, uh, mm-hmm. who's the candidate for Cooper, who's going to give Jed Carney a very good run for her money. Uh, and then we have uh, Dorinda Cox, who is the senator-elect for Western Australia, who's a deadly black woman and who will be joining me in the Senate uh, in September. So incredible lineup. Uh, I'll be asking the hard questions around treaty. So it's an opportunity for you to ask some of those hard questions around treaty, and I encourage you all to come along tonight and um, sign up. Yeah, wonderful. And you can find uh, information for how to sign up on uh, Senator Lydia Thorpe's social media. There'll be links, um, so you can find uh, you can find you on um, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I know. Um, but yeah, is there anything else that you wanted to to plug before we wrap? Uh, just that. Um, yeah, I, I'd really encourage everybody to do their homework uh, and sign up to a treaty. Uh, it, it's how, it, you know, we've got, we're dealing with so much with COVID. Um, people are starting to learn to look after one another, uh, not entirely, but, you know, a treaty can, um, a treaty is about that too. It's about not leaving anyone behind. Mm-hmm. And this country we know has, the, the rich and the poor, we've got public housing crises, we've got too many crises around this country. A treaty is an opportunity to set this country in, in good stead to ensure that no one is left behind. Yeah, that's a perfect, perfect way to encapsulate it. And thank you so much, Senator Thorpe, for taking the time to speak with us. My pleasure. Thank you.
And that was a conversation with Senator Lydia Thorpe, who's a Jaburong, Ghanai, and Gunachamara woman, and the Green Senator for Victoria, who joined us to speak about the importance of treaty and a truth-telling and treaty circle event, which is on this evening at 7 p.m., and also linking that concern into issues around incarceration and climate change. And you're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is just gone 8.04 in the morning. And Rosie, your interview's up next. Yeah, so um, this morning we're going to be speaking with um, Irene from Rahu. Um, and Irene is talk- t- joining us this morning to talk about the recent VCAT decision that ruled it lawful for renters to be evicted from their homes for unpaid rental debt accrued during the Victorian Victorian eviction moratorium that ended in March this year. Sorry, words, words this morning. Um, good morning, Rini. Welcome to Thursday Breakfast. Hey, Rosie. Hey, Breakfast team. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining us. So um, we've had Rahu on the show a few times before, but I just wanted to um, get you to briefly introduce Rahu for listeners who haven't heard of you before and just talk about as well the work you've been doing over the last year of the pandemic or year and a half or whatever it's been. Yeah, it's been a while now. Hey, um, so so Rahu is the Renters and Housing Union, and we formed out of the COVID nineteen rent strike in March of last year. Um, so we last year we pushed for the eviction moratorium to be extended three times, and that was quite successful until March of this year. And since then, we've been organising collectively, as we always have, to defend renters and our neighbours from evictions. And we've just recently formed three new local branches uh, just this year as well. So it's been amazing to see what we can, what we've been able to do considering the circumstances and it's much needed. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I was just wanting to get you to actually talk a bit more about that moratorium that was in place um, uh, in 2020 and it ended, as you said, in March of this year. So could you just explain for listeners what the more, like how the moratorium works and also um, whether renters are expected to pay the debt accrued during the moratorium, and if so, were they like made aware of that at the time? It's a really good question. Um, to go through it, uh, there's a couple of things. There are two different uh, uh, schemes, packages, that the Victorian government introduced in March of last year. There was the eviction moratorium and the rent reduction scheme, and so the moratorium was something that banned notices to vacate, rent increases, and made the process of evictions to have to go through VCAT. And the decisions would be made based on what was reasonable and proportionate and considered the impact of COVID-19 on the renter. So the land- landlords had to apply to VCAT, basically, instead of sending you a notice to vacate. Um, in terms of the rental debt, that came out of the rent reduction scheme predominantly um, because the Victorian government expected us to come to the table in good faith with landlords and agents and the effect of that has meant that those agents and landlords denied and protracted those reductions requests and I'm sure many many mm-hmm. people have experienced that because that's what we've been doing in the union is is dealing with that fallout from that scheme that wasn't 
well regulated or didn't have much oversight. Um, so many of those reduction requests ended up as deferrals and agents weren't clear about that mm-hmm. um, in terms of what, what renters could get instead of a deferral. And deferral means that all of the rent is due at the end of that period. So a lot of that deferred rent became due in March 20, uh, March 29th, which is when the scheme and the moratorium ended. So I hope that kind of... Yeah, I think that's a little bit of the difference of those two things. No, that's really, really helpful and clear. And I think, yeah, that point about expecting, um, you know, renters to kind of come to the table in like fair negotiations with people who have such huge kind of power differential in terms of the people who own or um, manage their properties and their homes is kind of insane. And you can see how that that kind of power was uh, manipulated or used to, yeah, kind of get people into these um, deferrals rather than actual rent reductions, which would, yeah, have, exactly. you know, lighten the load. And, yeah, the idea that you could suddenly, on the 29th of March, suddenly have all that rent ready to pay is pretty um, ridiculous. So Yeah, yeah, and we, we talked about that a lot. We published a report on um, that in August of last year, so literally a year ago today, um, explaining that this was the effect and this that what we're seeing now is the effect of, of that issue. So mm. one thing I do need to note is that through that period, we successfully waived over $100,000 in rental debt from renters and our members um, in our first year of existence. And it is possible if you are currently in rental debt um, to get in touch with us and to join us because there is ways out and there are ways to make sure that that debt's waived because Absolutely. no one should be expected to pay for this pandemic. No, absolutely. I did want to go to um, this recent decision from the Victorian Civil and Administrative Tribunal, um, BCAT, that they ruled recently that it was lawful to evict a person for unpaid rent accrued during the moratorium on evictions. So could you give us a bit more detail about this recent case and explain the implications for renters with existing debts or those experiencing rental stress? Sure. Um, so with the VCAT decision recently, um, there was an article about it in the Age and in the ABC as well. Basically, it was a case of a, of a, a woman who um, was on job seeker who lost her work over COVID and um, accrued debt in, in her rental property. So it's a really common situation and it speaks volumes to the fact that we actually need the moratorium and its protection still today um, because, of course, she can't be expected to pay that debt. Um, the VCAT decision ended up going to the director of VCAT to have further consideration on it. But at the end of the day, um, we're, we're, we're talking about trying to come up with a solution under normal uh, legislation that is just not adequate for a, a, a global pandemic. Um, so for a lot of the time when we're supporting um, our members in these kinds of situations, we do successfully waive the debt, particularly for people who are of low income. Um, that said, it's, it's shockingly, um, it's shocking to see that the moratorium is not protecting people, um, to stay at home under like circumstances where we really should have that protection. So, we're pushing to extend that, um, to, sorry, to reinstate the moratorium, not just to, to extend it anymore, because these are the kinds of results that we can see without those protections in legislation. 
Mm, thank you. Yeah, it's really important, I guess, to see that it is actually the, the fact that we this kind of legislation has ended and so now we're operating in this quote-unquote normal um, legal space where it's just completely yeah, inadequate, as you say, to the current conditions because we're still in this global pandemic. Um, and just to go on to that, I, I wanted to ask about, you know, currently, obviously, we're all in lockdown in Victoria um, in Melbourne at least and there are these various kind of one-off payments that people can apply for as well as support food packages um, but I just wanted to ask about you know there's obviously no ongoing su- support for people who have lost income at the moment and how this is affecting renters currently. Sure yeah I think the payment packages um, are very much uh, one-off and very sort of red taped as well. I think a lot of people in casual work aren't actually able to get the certain certain COVID-19 payments because most of us who work in casual work won't receive a full eight hours work a day. Um, it might be three hours, four hours, particularly during the restrictions. So it's not enough and it's not a long-term solution. Um, so we've been pushing with our um, petition to demand for the for the federal government to reinstate the COVID-19 supplement for people on um, any Centrelink payments. And we also think that there needs to be stimulus packages um, that are far more broad, broad-reaching for people to apply for um, in a long-term in a long-term way because. It's obviously having a huge effect on renters. We've lost now um, 40, 45 days, I think, under lockdown. Um, so that's another month and a half of work lost for a mm. lot of people. And we're in our 112th day of restriction. So it's really not enough to have these small, you know, stop-start kind of relief packages when rent is still the same every month um, and our ability to pay it is increasingly challenging. Yeah, totally. And it's, yeah, exactly. These kind of like, you might get a few hundred dollars here or there, but yeah, you've got to pay rent every month. And um, the uncertainty of that is absolutely terrifying. Um, So just to kind of wrap up, I wanted to ask about what Rahu is working on at the moment, both in response to um, the moratorium and the VCAT ruling. And you've just outlined there um, a petition that you're talking about in relation to federal government and job seeker. Centrelink payments and the supplement. Could you just kind of run us through everything that you're working on at the moment and how listeners can get involved um, and support your calls? Sure. So if you head to our website, rahu.org.au, um, we have a petition currently that's just hit 1,500 signatories yesterday um, and it's calling for the Victorian government to reinstate the rental moratorium, to reinstate uh, and include the residential um leases into commercial rent relief scheme, which is a far better far better scheme for reducing rents. And of course, as as you mentioned, the federal government demands. Um, so far we've had eighteen organizations sign on with us. And if you want to sign it yourself, please head to our website, rahu.org.au. Um, and also you can join up there um, with with the Renters and Housing Union. Yeah, totally. So, get in touch and, and get become part of the union and yeah if you're experiencing some of these um, rental stresses or debts definitely get in touch with Rahu. Um, Thank you so much for joining us this morning Irini to talk about all of this Um, we really really appreciate it. Thanks so much Rosie for having me on and cheers everybody. 
You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast and just then I was speaking with Irini, Secretary of the Renters and Housing Union or RAHU um, and Irini was joining me to discuss a recent VCAT decision that ruled it lawful for renters to be evicted from their homes for unpaid rental debt accrued during the Victorian eviction moratorium that ended in March this year and we also discussed you know, ongoing rental stress and housing precarity for casualised workers and those on low on- incomes um, during this current lockdown. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. Good morning, listeners. You're here on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast, 8.55 a.m. Um, we are now going to speak to author Sarah El Sayed, who's going to join us to speak about her first book, Muddy People. Good morning, Sarah. How are you? Good morning. I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, no, so excited. Um, I, I guess we'll just jump right into it. Um, could you tell us a bit more about yourself and the story behind you creating Muddy People, your memoir? Sure. So um, this story is about me and my family. So uh, I was born in Egypt, in Alexandria, uh, in the mid-90s, and we migrated to Brisbane, Australia, in early 2002. Uh, And so this story is all about my family's, um, I suppose, transition to a new country, as well as uh, the relationships of us and how we've evolved, so how I've grown up. Mm. in like a white dominant community in southeast Queensland, um, how my parents' relationships with each other have cha- has changed so, yeah. uh, as they divorced when I was 17. Yeah. Uh, and then the ongoing relationships that I've had with my parents over the years you know, as my dad was diagnosed with lymphoma mm. and um, over the course of the period of time when um, my mother lost her estranged father as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's like so many layered and powerful stories like woven into this one book, which I found really, really interesting. And you kind of describe this book as based on memories of your childhood. What was it like to kind of engage in this process of reflection and, and writing for your book? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, it was an interesting process because, I mean, we can sit and remember things like stories from our childhood, but don't, we can't necessarily just tell stories for the sake of telling them. Yeah. Like through memoir, there sort of has to be some sort of meaning and purpose for telling each story. And I think that was the that was a fruitful pro- process for me. Um, and you know, talking with my family members and hearing what they remember, mm. as opposed to hearing what I remember as well, 
help me piece together those memories and find the meaning within those. Mm-hmm. Um, and and things like um, like going through. So my my grandma is really good at taking photos and keeping lots of photos, which yeah. I'm really grateful for. Um, because I whenever I feel like oh I'm not too sure uh, you know where to start with this, her bank of <laughs> photographs really helped create the scene for me. Even though at the time like we didn't necessarily want photos to be taken yeah. at those really open moments and stuff like that, it, that that really helps with that memory and meaning making process as well. Oh, it sounds almost therapeutic in a way to have that journey of like reflecting and connecting with your family. Um, and one of the things I really enjoyed about your book was the way you weaved three generations worth of like experience in migration. And it really encapsulated the different types of migration stories out there. It's not just we were born here and then moved here and then lived happily ever after. How did you, how do you feel like your parents and your grandparents' moves across the globe impacted your own move to Australia? Yeah, that's another really good question. Um, so what, essentially what, uh, what happens and what I tell in the book is that my mother lived in Australia with her parents, with my grandmother and grandfather, uh, when she was a child. So they moved from Egypt to Melbourne, and then um, my grandmother and mother moved back to Egypt a um, couple of years afterwards. So if we were like within our family and my family lines. There's always been migration, moving around, and I mean it. It made it technically easier for like my mother's children, so me and my brother and my sister, to become Australian citizens because she was already a citizen. Mm. Um, it was more difficult for my father because he wasn't. So he had to go through the whole visa process and becoming a citizen. So we automatically became citizens once we moved here. So that yeah. technically made it easier. But also it, did, it adds a layer of complexity because mm. it's sort of it's harder to know where you, like, quote-unquote, come from. Yes. And I talk about that a little bit in a chapter about my mother where I say, like, I do to me, her voice sounds like she has no accent. Like yes. It's just like a no accent voice, like nothing from her to me. And I think that's because I don't feel like she's particularly tied to anywhere. Like she's sort of this transient being. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of that's sort of reflected in our experience as well. Like like you said, it's not just from we were here from we were here in one time and then we're now here and that's that's it. It's yeah. sort of like we're moving we're always moving. Mm. No, that's, and I really loved, yeah, that was one of my favorite aspects of the book when reading through it. And um, in your acknowledgement, you also shared that it has been a privilege to share your voice and story through this book as the stories of Arabs continue to be erased. What advice do you have for other Arab writers looking to document and share their stories? Yeah, I, my advice is that uh, they should definitely do it, uh, despite the difficulties that they may face, whether that's within the publishing industry or within media, like, just do it. I think that Australian literature is will be like all the better for having a diversity of voices. And that's not just across different groups of race and ethnicity mm-hmm. uh, or cultural groups. That's within the groups as well. So I think one of the great, the best things that, have, that has come out of publishing this book is that I've had people say that they relate to the stories, but mm-hmm. I've also had people within the Arab community also say that they enjoyed the book, but there are, there are some experiences that they've never had themselves. And I think that's, that's fantastic mm. that, you know, we're not all the same, that there is diversity within our own community as well. Yeah. So my, yeah, my advice would be do it. And so we can, we can see the plethora of diversity within our communities. Mm. I think that's a really important point, like showcasing that there is diversity even within our cultural groups and not all of us are going to identify with the same story. So we need to be telling loads of different stories, not just one for each group. Um, and 
I guess lastly, um, could you tell listeners where they can purchase your book um, and how they because really, truly, it is a wonderful book and would recommend. But yeah, where can listeners purchase your book? Oh, totally. Yeah, so you can purchase it um, in most places. So I know like online stores, like, um, but you can also purchase it directly from my publisher's website, so Blacking. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it should, it's in most uh, major bookstores uh, and online, so I'm sure you can search, search the title Muddy People and um, mm-hmm. there'll be a couple of different options to purchase there. Yeah. yeah, and I guess before we wrap up, could you tell us a, about some of the writers you're currently loving or what books you're reading at the moment? Yeah, so I'm currently reading uh, another Arab-Australian memoir called The Mother Wounds by Amani Hazar. I don't know if you've heard no, that one. I'm going to write that down and check it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, she's, uh, she's a fantastic uh, writer, artist, advocate, lawyer. Um, the, her writing is gorgeous. The story is absolutely heartbreaking, but told with such grace and ferocity as well. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm just loving it. <laughs> Can, yeah, you've already convinced me. But, yeah, thank you so much for joining us this morning, Sarah, and um, kind of sharing your process through writing this book. And for listeners out there who are looking for a book during lockdown number six, would definitely recommend it. So check out check out online or even through Black Ink, the publishers of books. But, yeah, thanks again for joining us, Sarah. Thank you for having me. No problem. See ya. Bye. Um, you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast. We just spoke to Sarah El-Sayed. Um, an author who just released her first book, Muddy People, um, and you can check out that book online or through her publisher's Black Ink. And we are coming up to the end of the show on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast, and what a massive show it was. Mm. So we might take you back through some of what you've heard today. Um, so first up, you heard from Jay Anjanaid, who is a Rohingya journalist and journalism editor at the Archipelago magazine. He's a student of political science and a human rights activist, formerly an engineering and physics student in Myanmar, before he was forced to flee to Indonesia, where he is now stranded due to Australian border policy. Um, and that was the first part of a two-part interview with Jay Anjanaid, and the second part is going to be playing next week on Thursday Breakfast, so make sure you tune in again next week to catch that, and also every week for Thursday Breakfast. Um, and the, you can also find out more information about his experience at the Freedom Street documentary website, which uh, covers the story of Janaid and other refugees trapped in Indonesia due to Australia's border regime, and donate to their fundraiser at freedomstreetfilm.com. We then spoke with Mariam, who is a clinical scientist and Afghan clothing and jewellery boutique owner, and she um, joined us to speak about her current fundraising campaign to raise emergency funds for displaced families in Kabul during the ongoing humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. And for people that are wanting to learn more, um, you can check out her Instagram page, Maz Boutique, that's M-A-Z-B-O-U-T-I-Q-U-E, or find her campaign on GoFundMe by just searching Kabul Funds. And then after that, uh, we were joined by Senator Lydia Thorpe, who's a Jaburong, Ghanai, and Gunajamar woman and the Green Senator for Victoria. And she joined us on 3CR to talk about treaty in light of incarceration rates in Victoria and also climate change. Um, also, you know, thinking about the, the 12 apostles drilling plan and people should really be pushing back against that. Uh, so, uh, she also discussed the Truth Telling and Treaty Circle event, which is on this evening at 7 p.m. And you can register for that through all of her socials. So she's on Facebook, she's on Twitter and on Instagram. So find out more information, register and tune in because it'll be a really important discussion and opportunity to learn more about treaty.
And then we spoke with Irini, Secretary of the Renters and Housing Union, about the recent VCAP decision that ruled it lawful for renters to be evicted from their home for unpaid debt accrued during the Victorian eviction moratorium and also ongoing problems of rental stress and housing precarity amid the current lockdown. And lastly, we were joined by Sarah Elsaid, who spoke to us about her first book, Muddy People. Um, she is a Master of Fine Arts and works at Queensland University of Technology, and her work features in anthologies growing up African in Australia and Arab Australian Other, amongst other places. She is a recipient of Queensland Writers Fellowship and was a finalist for the 2020 Queensland Premier's Young Writers and Publishers Award. Yeah, and um, just a reminder for people that want to support, um, you know, people in Afghanistan, but also some of the efforts by the diaspora um, to you know, support displaced Afghans, you can head to linktree forward slash Afghanistan needs you. So that's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E forward slash Afghanistan needs you. And there you can find out information on how to write to your MPs, uh, both to call on the Australian government and parliamentarians to stand in solidarity with the Afghan people, most importantly, by massively increasing refugee quotas um, and resettling people immediately. You know, 26 people on the first plane out is unacceptable. Um, and also uh, you can find fundraisers for emergency relief donations, including the Maz Boutique fundraiser. Um, so that's all we've got time for today on Thursday Morning Breakfast. Thanks, crew. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for joining us for another big show, and we'll see you next week. Woohoo! 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.